After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled them at the shore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, that net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. <coughs> now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so Jesus uh, has revealed himself on these first two occasions in chapter 20, and then you've got some of the disciples that are there by the Sea of Tiberias, another name for the Sea of Galilee, and what do they decide to do? Yeah. Now, at least for some of these men, fishing had been their way of life previously. Seems to me reasonable that that's what they uh, decide to do that night. How many of them were there? <coughs> Seven of them. Two of them unnamed. The rest of them we know who they were. Nathaniel would be the only one who might not be an apostle, and yet I think it's probable Nathaniel is the same as Bartholomew. But either way, you've got these seven together. They go out and fish. It's pretty typical on the Sea of Galilee that you'd fish at night. How did they do? Not so well. Not so good. How many fish did they catch? None. Jesus is on shore the next morning, and he hollers out to them in the boat, Children, have you caught any fish? Well, they haven't. So what does Jesus tell them? They don't recognize him. It's a long ways off. They don't recognize him, but what does he tell them to do? Yeah, cast your nets down on the right side. This, you know, they don't fish with the pole and the line. They fish with a net that they're able to put down and draw it back up. Well, when they cast their nets into the, on the right side of the boat, what happened? You find fish. Like a few? A couple. A lot. Yeah. 
an incredible quantity of fish, so much they couldn't even get the net up. <laughs> this huge number of fish. Now I want you to think, as we're thinking about this, about some things that you're seeing in this already. They had fished all night with no <coughs> results. Can you see a deeper lesson in that right there? <coughs> no matter what we do without Christ, uh, it has no meaning. Exactly. That's what Jesus said, say, in John 15, in that story of the vine and the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, there's no fruit, there's no fish, there's no success. And this is a very graphic way of physically demonstrating <coughs> that. You know, they don't have any fish on their own. Jesus comes and tells them what to do, and they follow his instruction. And there's so many fish, they can't even haul them aboard. And we'll think, keep thinking about that as we think about this, and we'll talk that, about that a little bit more in a minute. Who first came to, uh, it came to dawn on them that it was really Jesus? Who realized that first? Say it, Matt. John. John, the disciple Jesus loved, which I believe was John. He tells Peter, that's the Lord! You know, John was perceptive. And perhaps, you know, when they were able to draw in that great catch of fish, you remember in Luke 5, a very similar event took place. <laughs> Maybe he puts two and two together, he has a flashback. It's, that's Jesus. When John tells Peter that, what did Peter do? Went into action. Yeah. Jumped in the water. Yeah. He tucked his garment in and jumped in to swim to shore to Jesus. Doesn't that strike you as Peter? You know, John, you're not surprised he's the first to recognize him. And Peter is the impulsive one, the first one to jump in and swim to him. You know, that's, that's how Peter often is. They're very much in character in that. Peter can't wait to get to him. But John's the one who recognized it first. And, uh, well... They, the other disciples come on the boat and they drag the fish up on shore. There's this, Jesus already got a fire going. He'd already had some fish on the fire and he had bread. And Jesus said, now bring some of the fish you've caught. Well, what do you find out about the quantity of fish they had caught? The number. How many? <laughs> 153. Now, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in, uh, of numbers in the Bible. You know, like we know the number 7 and the number 12 and so forth. So why, did, why were there 153 fish? Well, I think it's because that's how many there were. <laughs> but I must say... People can be creative. Do you know all the stuff you can do with the number 153? I, I'm using this just as an illustration. It's also kind of funny, but I think there's a point to be made by this. You know something? Uh, you would never have thought about this, but if you envision a triangle and you put 17 dots on the bottom row, 
and then 16 dots on the next row, and then 15 dots, and so forth, up to the first one. You know how many dots you're going to have? 153. <laughs> Seven, uh, 153 is a, what they call a triangular number. Now, I don't think that really means anything. I don't know what you do with that once you find that out, but a lot of the commentators made a, make a big deal about that. Uh, there was an uh, early church, you know, whatever, father, Cyril of Alexandria. He said that 153 represented 100 pagans, 50 Jews, and the Trinity. That's how you get the 153. Of course, that's really made up, you know. Uh, so that's how many there were, but there's a ton. And it kind of is like an eyewitness and a fisherman at that who'd count the fish and who'd remember that's how many there were. It really shows you how successful they were. Can you imagine? All night, nothing. And then one word of Jesus, 153, in one cast of the net. Now again, does that teach you anything? What do you learn? The Lord provides. You listen to him, and he provides. Now, do you remember in earlier in the Gospels, what Jesus used fishing as a parallel to? What? Tim? Fishers of men. Fishers of men. What does that mean? Fishers of men. You know, what does it mean, fishers of men? Preaching the word. Bringing people to Christ. I think there's a lesson in this. If we submit to Christ and follow his teachings, we'll be successful in bringing men to him. If we just try to go out and act on our own and do things our way, we'll not have success, at least not in bringing people to the Lord. You know, this is kind of a parable for them of what he's about to send them out to do. He's going to send them out to do some fishing. They better listen to him and do it his way if they want to catch the fish. So Jesus says, you know, come and have breakfast. And they realize it's, it's the Lord. And he takes the bread and gives it to him and the fish. And they have a meal together. Right there on the shore. Now this, it says this is the third time he was manifested to the disciples. Understand what he means by that. The third time he came to the group. Now he appeared to some individuals earlier. But this is the third time he appeared to all of them as a group. The first two are in chapter 20. This one in chapter 21. Alright, comments and questions on this whole story. Micah. Could one idea of the 153 fish just be maybe that's more than the average casting of a net? Yes, absolutely. And the net didn't break. And the net. So usually if you had that many fish in it, you couldn't have gotten them up anyway because it's broken the net. So I think, yes, it really shows you the enormous catch. You know, if it had been 11 fish or something like that, you probably wouldn't have told us the number. It wouldn't have been significant. You get 153. It's kind of like you remember the number because it was so many. You know, you tend to re remember something like that. I mean, how many times, you know, have you gotten a three-inch snow, a one-and-a-half-inch snow? You don't remember those. But I remember in southern Indiana, you know, 
when one year we got a 22 inch snow and I remember the 24 inch snow we got because those are the two biggest snows I've ever seen. And so you remember, I remember the number, I couldn't tell you how many times we got an inch or two or three or whatever. So you remember something big. And the fishermen remember, it was 153. <laughs> John remembers that at least. Yes, Logan. Do you have any idea how much the normal cash I do not. Anybody know? You know, I've almost never fished in my life, so. <laughs> my normal anything would be done. Others? <laughs> Say. Um, we might have asked last time, I'm not sure. Um, but the idea in, in verse 12, uh, when it says, Yet no disciples dared ask him, Who are you knowing what to Christ? Is, are they, I don't understand that verse. Is that mean that he is somehow a different body? They don't recognize him or what? <coughs> I think there are some differences because they sometimes were a little slow to recognize him, but I'm not sure what that meant. But they do recognize him. You know, they came, they, they, didn't, they didn't ask him because they didn't really need to. They knew it was. Of course, you know, I mean, still, think about the amazement of this. You know, um, think about somebody, what, uh, have, how many of you have been to a funeral in the last two years? Okay, most of you. Okay, cool. All right, think about the last person you went to the funeral of. What would happen if uh, tomorrow you're uh, at church and you see that person? <laughs> uh, would it kind of, would you, you know, you'd wonder who they were. I mean, you'd recognize them except it can't be that person because they died. You know, I think we, we're so used to thinking about the resurrection of Jesus that that's not surprising to us. I think it's still difficult to believe he's really there. So that might be one factor that also complicates this. It's a little different from just seeing somebody you saw yesterday and you know they're, you know, hale and hearty. So. Other comments and questions? Chris? Why did they go fishing? Well... That's what they're used to doing. I mean, some people make a big deal about that. I just think, why not? Had they been fishing for the last three years? They had not because they were with Jesus in his personal company. But during this 40 days, Jesus didn't have like people following him around. He just occasionally showed up and appeared to them. So they're not actually with him. So they don't have something to do. That's my take. Now, some people say you know, they were just abandoning the Lord and going back to fishing or something like that. But I'm not so sure of that. I just think, I mean, Jesus had gone eight days between his appearances to them in, in chapter 20. I don't know how many more days this was. That's my take. I, I do think <coughs> that we need to see that there is real purpose in this section of the chapter. I mean, Jesus is about to send these guys out to preach. Before he does, he really graphically shows them, if you want to get fish, listen to my instructions. That's a good thing to tell them right before he sends them out. <coughs> Other comments or questions? This next section, 
is a good thing to tell right before he sends someone out, especially from the background. 15 to 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, Now, I want you to remember the last time, we'll look at verse 9. Do you remember the last time there was a charcoal fire? Look at 1818. <clears throat> this is the same kind of setting. They're gathered around a charcoal fire. Last time we know about a charcoal fire and fire in Peter, what did he do? Deny Jesus three times. Now he's around a charcoal fire again, and Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he says that three times. Do you suppose that Peter remembered? It hadn't been very many days ago, just a very few weeks. And I'm not sure what he means, do you love me more than these? You know, maybe, do you remember right before Peter denied Jesus, when he was talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, all of you will fall away. And do you remember what Peter said? Not me. They might, but I won't. I'll die with you. You remember that? Peter was confident that no matter what the others did, he'd stay loyal. I wonder if Jesus is asking him, Peter, do you still love me more than they do? And um, at any rate, he's asking Peter about his love and his commitment. Now, what does Peter say about loving Jesus? Does he love him? What's Peter say? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. He loves him. He says, you know that I love you. Now what does Jesus say then? Now, think of, there's so many things to say about this. Jesus is giving Peter the job to do to tend his sheep. But what's the requirement for us to be able to do that job? 
you have to love him. That is the first and greatest requirement to be able to help and serve others. You have to love Jesus. But I want you to think about the significance to Peter of Jesus saying to him, tend my sheep. What's that saying to Peter? He hasn't been. Maybe. I think there's something deeper even than that. Put yourself in Peter's place. What's that saying to him? Shepherd leaving. That's true. Good point. So you're going to be tending the sheep now. Good point. I'm thinking of even something different. I think that's true. What about in Peter's psychology? Think about how Peter's feeling. What's this telling Peter? You trusting me? Yes! I trust you again. What's another way of saying that? Jesus forgiven him. Not only is he forgiven him, but Jesus is going to have work for him to do, going to use him again. You know, can't you imagine Peter feeling so defeated and so ashamed of himself that he would feel like he could never again be useful to the Lord? Jesus is telling Peter, get up. I've got work for you to do. Now, I mean, how did Peter feel when, the, when, he, when it dawned on him what he'd just done? How did he feel? Man, he was just torn up. Have you ever felt that way about your sins? Has it ever just dawned on you how horrible what you just did was? How much it hurt the Lord? Has it ever just made you feel so terrible inside? In a sense, that's good. You know, if we laugh off our sins, that's not a good thing. We should grieve our sins. They are terrible. But when you feel that way, when you feel the weight of your sin, and you feel almost in despair, look at what I just did. I can't believe I did that. Maybe you even say, I can't believe I did that again. Does it ever feel, make you feel just kind of hopeless and useless? I'm like, I might as well give up. Does it ever make you feel like, man, I could never, ever do anything for God. How could he ever use somebody who's messed up so bad as I have? I can, I can feel that. You know, uh, do you remember Luke 22? Jesus understood Peter really well. That's not a big surprise, is it? Jesus knows what's inside of a man. Look at what Jesus had said to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Does Jesus know what Peter's going to do? Of course. He told it. But what does he say? When you turn, when you repent, strengthen your brothers. We'd say, I've repented, but I'm useless now. The Lord couldn't possibly use somebody who's messed up as bad as I have. 
Yes, he can. Strengthen your brothers. Or here, three times. Peter, feed my sheep. Don't you wallow in self-pity and grief and just constantly be immersed in how horrible you are. Forget yourself. Receive my forgiveness. Love me and work for me. There is work to be done after we've messed up. And we really need that. You know, we oscillate back and forth between two extremes. There are times when a Christian will commit some sin and just, just close his eyes and laugh it off and act like it's nothing and it doesn't bother us. Well, that's wrong. Sin hurts Christ that loves us. We should never laugh it off. But then there's the other extreme where it's like, I've done something so bad, I've just been so worthless, I can't ever serve him anymore. I'm just, you know, and we just wallow in self-pity and just feeling horrible and just thinking about how much we failed him and how much we've let him down. And instead of seeing opportunities to serve and help others, all we can think about is how bad we are. So I think this is extremely practical that he tells Peter, you get busy and work for me. I'll use you again. And, and 50 days, more or less, after Peter had denied him, God uses Peter to preach the first gospel sermon on that at Pentecost. Would you have used Peter? See how forgiving the Lord is? See how he doesn't just forgive us in the sense that he'll let us go to heaven. He takes it away from us in the sense that he'll use us and make something out of us in spite of how bad we messed up. What do you think about that? Logan? There's one uh, major problem I'm seeing with, you know, how we wallow in self-pity and that sort of thing when we say we're so bad. And that's that when we're doing that, who are we focusing on? Yes! Because too often times, when we do that, we're focusing on ourselves and not God. Because I'll find, even myself sometimes, when I'm talking to somebody that might feel so down about it, or even when I'm feeling down about it. Either we want to be built up, or if that person we talk to, we want to build them up, but it's like, oh, you're not that bad. Well, that's not the right thing to do. We need to help them to focus on God instead of themselves. Yes, it's not that we're not that bad. We are. It's that Jesus forgives and restores us in spite of how bad we are. That's the secret. We've got to trust His grace. Micah? Uh, I was reminded of Isaiah 6, just how... God doesn't forgive us just for the sake of forgiving us so that we can get to heaven. It's for the purpose of serving Him and giving the glory back to Him. He forgives us, He takes away our sins, so that we can praise Him and glorify Him. Yes, here am I, send me, after Jesus, or God, purged Isaiah's sin. Good. Patrick? Um, you and I actually talked about this the other day. When... When someone gets to that point where they're in that self-pity, that self-focusedness, um, you know, they feel so bad about themselves. They don't feel good enough to overcome the sin again when temptation comes. Uh, you know, there's no motivation if you're already thinking, well, I'm so horrible. If you're feeling that way and focusing on that, then you might as well just continue being horrible. If you focus on how God has given you an entirely new beginning once you repent, that's motivation to keep going people glorifying God. Now, I don't know if I can, sometimes I have a hard time expressing some concepts, but many of you know I've talked to you about this, so you'll remember what I'm about to say. But there's a pattern that sets itself up sometimes when we think in self 
focused, legalistic, self-righteous terms. Here's what I see happening sometimes. I see somebody who's trying to overcome a sin in their life. And they're really bottling it, and, and they go for a day, and they're good. Two days, and they're good. Three days, and they're good. A week, and they're good. Ten days, and they're still good. And they get to feeling better and better and better and like, wow, I'm really starting to do something. I'm really starting to please God. I'm really this. I'm really that. And then one day, they fall flat on their face. And they feel devastated. And they've lost their record. Now they're worthless. Now it's hopeless. Now... Even if they stay good in that for a day or two, they're still not nowhere close to their record. They're still not really any good. So what do they do? The next day they fall again. And the next day they fall again. And they just start, start binging in sin. It's kind of like a diet. You know, people, a lot of times, they'll stick with their diet for a while, but if once they break their diet, then they just gorge themselves for days because they already broke it. Now here's the problem with that. We're too legalistic and self-focused. We're too much trying to earn our way up there, and when we break the spell, it's like we're worthless anyway. Maybe I can explain this better by saying what I think we ought to do. Every day's a new day. Every day's a fresh battle. I don't care if you've been good in that sin for an hour or for a year. The focus is today we're, we're, we've got a battle with Satan and we have to trust the Lord to win it. If you fail, you blow it and you disappoint the Lord by sinning. What should you do right then? Get up. Pray to God with grief and tears and humility. With no worthiness of God, beg for his forgiveness and let him forgive you. Let him wipe that sin away and make you pure and righteous again and start working for him again. So often, we feel like I've got to prove myself. Now I've really got to do something for the Lord. You know, sometimes people try to make up for it. Okay, I, I just fell. Now I've got to do this, 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 this. You know, I've got to, I've got to really work and I've got to do all these things that, and maybe I can... No. You, you can't. Just what could you do to make up for one sin? Could you ever study the Bible enough to make up for a sin? Could you ever, you know, help little old ladies across the street enough to make up for one sin or whatever it is? Could you ever punish yourself enough to make up for one sin? You can't do anything to make up for not even one sin. It's only by God's grace you turn to Him for His mercy. And you appreciate Him so much and you love Him so much. And you're so thankful for His grace that you want to work even harder for Him. You want to serve Him even more. And you can. You've got to see that once you've been forgiven, what do you look like to God? What do you look like to God once you've been forgiven? Totally you. A new slate. Righteous, a new slate, pure, clean. You ever gone to God and said, I, 
I'm so sorry. I, I'm asking you to forgive me again. I wonder what the Lord says when we say that. Now, I don't mean this in the absolute sense. But I wonder if he's not saying, again? Because what does he do when he forgives us? It's not again for him. He really wipes it out. Now, if we take that and we abuse it to say, okay, then I'll go ahead and sin because I can ask him for forgiveness later. The deal's off. That is a terrible abuse of God's grace. But he wants his grace to make us realize, I can get up and work for him. I can get up and serve him. You know, I see people who, who mess up and they're like, I can't ever help anybody. I can't teach anybody. I can't encourage anybody. I can't even serve God anymore. I just messed up too bad. No, you did not because of God's grace. If it was based upon what you've done, you already messed up too bad. Forget it. But by the mercy and grace of God, he says to Peter, if you love me, I've got work for you to do. You think about how horrible Peter was. Do you realize the dagger that Peter put into Jesus' heart? Jesus is on trial. Jesus is moments away from being nailed onto the cross. Peter's almost his best friend. Jesus is with him in hearing distance. And Peter finally says, my God damn me to hell if I know that man. Because he was just scared. He was unwilling to stand up and be loyal to the one he loved. And right when Peter said that, Jesus in Luke twenty two sixty one turned and looked at him. You ever done anything that bad? Do you see why Peter felt hopeless? And yet, Jesus says, three times, get busy. Feed my sheep, Peter. I'm not holding this against you. It didn't mean you can't serve. Serve! Help! Work! I think this is amazing. And I think it's exactly what we've got to do. Take your sin seriously. If you ever start laughing it off, kick yourself. Don't ever sin. Be determined not to. But when you fail, Luke 22, and you turn back to the Lord, strengthen the brethren. Comments and thoughts on that? Shay. It just it seems so hypocritical, and I find myself doing that so much. Just the idea of what can I do to deserve this? And it's not even a conscious thing. It's something I'm really thinking, well, I really do something to deserve heaven. But it is a feeling of <clears throat> it's really hard to overcome that, uh, and, and it's really hard for me to to not study for those reasons. And it's really a conscious thing. I've really got to sit down and pray a lot before I study, because I have to make sure that what I'm doing is for the Lord and not for myself. Um, and I'm talking to guys about this all the time. You can study about 153. You know, you can study 150 psalms. There's not 153 psalms, by the way, but you can study 150 psalms, and if you're just reading the Bible, it's not going to do any good. But if you're doing it because you love the Lord and you're trying to get out of it, it's going to help you. Um, and I think we need to get, instead of getting lost on ourselves, we need to get lost in what God is lost in. And that's, uh, that's all the people around us and helping each other. And that's what God is lost in. Once you get lost in the Lord, we'll get lost in each other. Absolutely. It should not be that you want to do more for God 
to make up for what you've done wrong. A lot of you want to do more for God because you love Him. And you just care about Him so much. And you want to serve Him more. John? Seems, seems to be if we keep an even keel uh, perspective, when we've been able to be faithful to God for a period of time, that we have the right perspective. And then when we fall, we have the proper perspective. It made me, in Luke 17:10, when the slave has done what his master told him, so you too... When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. How could we ever earn things with God? We can't. So we just serve because we love Him. That also brings about a, a dangerous balance on the other side because we feel unworthy. On one end, when we're doing well, we're going to feel worthy. Yes. So it brings different yes. sins along with it. It's a balance. Um, you know, when, when you're doing well, you feel worthy. It's the exact same thing as when you sin. You know. Yeah. Paul Hart wrote an article one time about how pride and a feeling of inferiority are almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're just flip sides of the same coin. Self-focused. Mm-hmm. Forget yourself. Serve the Lord. Now, can I? Yes, Ryan. Speak. Um, one of the things I really like to do is snowboarding. And if I'm going down a hill and I fall when I'm snowboarding, I'll immediately try to scramble up to my feet before I come to a stop so I don't lose a whole bunch of momentum. I think we sometimes do that spiritually. If I fall spiritually, if I sin, and I try to scramble to my feet, I don't really think initially about going to God in prayer and asking for forgiveness and letting Him give me a new start. I go mow the lawn or I go read my Bible. And sometimes it's tempting to just try to scramble back up and act like nothing happened. Yes. Trying to cover it up. That's going to always hurt us. That's another angle on this. If you don't acknowledge your sin, you're trying to pretend like it didn't happen. You know, I've done that before with different things. Um, You know, you mess something up real bad, you just try to... you know, get away from it and just kind of avoid it and I I didn't really do that, that didn't really happen. Well, what does that do to you? You still know you did it. It's still in there. You still feel guilty. You still feel weighted down. Much better to stop and say, I just did something horrible. I just hurt God. And and pray for forgiveness. Acknowledge it completely. Take responsibility. Don't try. Just jump up and, and, and pretend like it didn't happen. And just ignore it and hope it goes away. You can't do that. Other thoughts? Yes, Charles. I think often, oftentimes whenever we sin or whenever we fall, we try to rationalize and hold ourselves to a standard that is not God's standard. We try to make up for it in our own way whenever we should always, the only standard that in our life that we should ever hold ourselves to is the standard of God. Sure. And I think oftentimes we forget that standard, like he was saying, and we try to form some other way to forget about it or good point Patrick um, going along with what you were saying um, it it really brought to mind uh, I had a wreck not too long ago and I totaling my car my first thought was I didn't just do that <laughs> and so I mean I can think that all at once that doesn't change the fact that my car was totaled you know? and you know it's the same way with our lives you know if we think you know we we do something really stupid and we know it's stupid. We don't, a lot of times our first impulse is, I didn't just do that. But if we continue that, 
you know, if I just didn't think about my car being told and just kept trying to drive, I wouldn't have gotten too far. You know, and I did that. I've been too happy with that. So, I mean, it, it brings on consequences when we don't recognize their I did that one time. I was thinking about that earlier. I just wasn't going to say it. But I more or less did that. I remember one time when I ended up uh, having a closer encounter than I intended to with like a chain link, fe chain link fence. And uh, you know, you know, every time you, you do something stupid, for me, it is a really strong impulse to try to almost deny it in my mind and just erase it. Well, the impact was not particularly strong with the fence until instead of stopping and thinking and looking and figuring out what I ought to do, I just tried to drive away from it and I pulled my bumper around. <laughs> that was really the problem. If I had thought about what to do, I think I could have gotten away from that and almost had no impact on the car. But my first thought is, get away. That was about 30 years ago. <laughs> I don't think I do that now, but it's easy to. And it's easy to do that with our sins. We mess up, and instead of confessing them and really dealing with them, just trying to hide ourselves from them, it won't help. Really good comments. Good. These are such practical things for us. We all deal with the same kind of temptations, same kind of situations. Now, I want to I talk to you about something that people say. This is going to be kind of changing gears. I think, I think we've had a good discussion about this, and I think you can think about that. But here's something people say about this passage that I want to um, refute. Uh, there's a little bit of practical lesson in this that I'll tell you in a minute. But how many of you have heard this? Jesus says, do you love me more than these in verse 15? Peter says, you know that I love you. Then in 16, a second time, Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you. 17, he asks him a third time, do you love me? And Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, you know all things, you know that I love you. One of the points people make about this is there's different words for love. Jesus uses one for, word for love the first two times. Peter uses the different word for love. The third time, Jesus switches over to Peter's word and uses that word, and people make a big deal about these two different words for love really kind of mean different things somewhat. How many of you have heard that idea? Several of you? Not that many. Good. I'm glad not that many of you have. All right. Can I refute that? If you've heard it, okay. If you haven't, you probably will somewhere along the line. Let me see if I can refute that. It is true there's two words for love in this passage. That is true. There are also two words for tend or feed the flock. There's two words for the flock itself in this passage. And there's two words for know. You know that I love you. Just like we do. Do you ever use a synonym? Do you ever, you ever say that was awesome and somebody else says, yeah, it was amazing? Now, did one of you mean one thing and somebody, the other one meant something different? No, we have synonyms. Sometimes we use the same word or different words to mean kind of the same thing. In this case, look at verse 17. 
He said to him the third time, do you love me? He used a different word for love there. But it's the third time he said it. And Peter was grieved because he said to him, the third time, do you love me? Different word for love, but Peter sees it as the third time he's asked you the same question. If you vary a word and a question, but it's a synonym, it's the same question. It's just, it's just expressing it slightly differently. We do that all the time. If it means the same thing, if I talk to you about don't sit on the sofa, and then I say, hey, you weren't supposed to be on the couch. Well, what did that mean? Oh, well, you weren't on the sofa, you were on the couch. Well, the couch and the sofa are the same thing. I didn't mean that something totally different because I used a different word. We know that. Now, when it comes to these two words for love, anybody know the two words? Patrick? Isn't one agape and the other philia? Yeah, it's like that. Agape, phileo. It's kind of funny. That's what I always hear people say. It's really funny because agape is a noun. Phileo is the verb. So we're not even comparing parallels, but that's the idea. And... Uh, let me, let me give you some evidence. I'm going to throw a lot on you. Agape is supposed to be this special Christian love, and phileo is supposed to be a friendship love. That's what I hear most. Now, every once in a while, you've got a commentator who reverses that. But what I hear brethren say most, agape is this special, God-like, Jesus-like Christian love, and phileo is this just friendship, good-feeling kind of love. Well, in John, there's two different verses where it says the Father loves the Son, and he uses different words in those two verses. There's two verses where it says Jesus loves Lazarus, and he uses those two different words in those two verses. There's, two, there's more than one verse where it says the disciple Jesus loved, and he uses both of those, you know, different ones in each of the verses. There's, there's two passages where it says the Father loves the disciples, and he uses the two different words. There's two different verses where the disciples love the Lord, both words are used. In Genesis 37, in the Greek translation, Jacob's love for Joseph. In two successive verses, it uses the two different words. When Amnon loved Tamar, in the Greek translation of, of uh, 2 Samuel 13, it's agape. Now, you know his love was lust, but it's agape. In Demas loved this present world, it's agape. In 2 Timothy 4.10. Um, and this is so common throughout John. When Jesus talks about he was going to depart, in John 16, 5 to 10, he uses three different words for departure. In John 16, 20 to 22, he uses three different words for sorrowing or grieving. He uses two different words for guarding the disciples in 17, 12. Two different words for ear. Malchus's ear in John 18. You know, it's just normal. Don't make a big deal about the fact there were two different words. Not the same thing. When you don't don't make a don't don't make a scene. I'm not trying to make you smart, Alex. If you hear somebody in a sermon say, "This is agape love," "This is phileo love," they just don't understand. I made that point too. So don't make a big deal. Don't act like a big shot. But don't make the point. It's not a valid point. Uh, the, I don't. There's hardly any modern commentator or student of words that would make that point anymore. A lot of the older commentaries do. They tended to make more points like that that were invalid. But, but that's, not, that's just not a valid point. And I think what, what I raised uh, is helpful in that. Now, here's a couple practical lessons from that. One is, be extremely careful about making points 
about Greek or Hebrew words. We just really have to be careful about that. You may be tempted to do that. It makes you sound good. Now, in the Greek, it says, you know, if you really knew the Greek, this is what you'd learn by that. Well, look. I mean, why do they translate into English? Well, so we can read it in our own language. Now, what are the chances that you, as a very beginning Greek student, know, know more than a whole bunch of translators that study, have studied Greek for years and years and years? What we do is we don't know enough to know that we don't know. You'll get somebody who'll take, like, a Greek lexicon, and they'll read something. They're like, well, that's what it really means. Well, what's even worse? I don't know if you, if you even know what this is, but don't do this. There's interlinears. Interlinear has, like, the Greek or Hebrew, and then underneath it, word by word, it gives you the English. And people say, that's what it really means. Oh, they make all kinds of mistakes with that. Just don't go there. If you don't know Greek well, or Hebrew well, then don't make a point off the Greek or Hebrew. Make a point off the English. If you can't find an English translation that bears it out, I bet you anything, you don't understand the Greek or Hebrew well enough, and you're making an invalid point. I, I just think, I mean, stop and think about it. What's something you know? I mean, you know, uh, can I use you as an illustration, Billy? Um, you know, Billy knows football really well. You know, I don't know football very well. Billy plays on defense in the football. What if I looked at a football defense and I made some, well, you know, they should have had this, this, and this. Because, well, what are the chance? And, and Billy's like, no, that's not really the way it is. Who would you believe? Would you believe me or Billy? You know, he plays all the time. He knows it really well. Would you believe me? Shouldn't? Well, here you've got these translators who've studied Greek for years and years, you've got all different kinds of good, solid translations. None of them found that out. And here you come along, and you've looked at Greek how much? And you know all this? It's not likely. So just drop the Greek points. I think that's much safer. Logan. Just for the sake of my notes, how do you spell phileo? <laughs> P-H-I-L-E-O. That's not even right, because it's all Greek letters, but that'll get the point across. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we're just, just a, kind of a transliteration, but that's the idea. Um, so, so I think we're much safer on that. But, like I say, if you hear a sermon, and somebody does that, it's just not good to be arrogant. You know, if you know the person really well, and you're really close to them, you want to say, you know, I heard somebody telling one time that that wasn't quite right or whatever. That's okay. But don't don't be a big shot. But just don't use those words. You know, they're really not valid. John? Give an example, Gary, of when knowing something about the Greek language can be helpful to us. Or or will you, will you just throw them all out the window? Wow. There are a few people among brethren who really know Greek well, and they actually might be able to help us understand what a translation means. Sometimes when you read it in English, it could mean two different things. But if you knew the original language, you'd realize, oh, it means this. For example, uh, in the Old Testament, a lot of times they'll talk about the horn, like your horn of salvation, your horn being exalted. Well, guess what? Our English word horn means two different things. 
And every once in a while, I'll ask somebody when they're reading their horns exalted, what are you thinking of? And they're thinking of like a trumpet or something being held up in the air. No, no, it's animal horn. If you knew the Hebrew, in Hebrew there's two different words for the trumpet and the animal horn, and so that would clarify. You know, something like that would help. Sometimes you can kind of understand what the English means better. But, honestly, I really think it's rare it's going to help you if you haven't had a lot of study in the original language. I mean, my impression is that probably almost, almost 100% of the time, when somebody starts referring to the original language, they're point they make is either more easily made in English than it would have been in the original language, or it's just not right. If you can't make it in English, maybe it will help you to see what points you ought to make in English. Maybe. But if you can't make it in English, I really doubt that it's in the original language. Why couldn't you? Why did none of the translators know that? Isn't that amazing? you got all these translators. You know, think, take good translations. King James, New King James, New American Standard. You know, American Standard, the Revised Standard, you know, even the ESV is decent. Uh, the NIV is a little more loose. But would you take those seven translations? You can't find any of them that say that? Wow. That's amazing. You know? I'm not trying to belittle. I'm, not trying to, I'm definitely not trying to make fun of somebody who made a mistake about that. People are very sincere about that. I used to do that more. You know, I've, I've made that point about the love. Because I read it. It sounded good, it made sense to me, makes a good point. You know, I remember, there's a, there's a really popular, like he, write, he wrote a lot, he's dead I think now, but, but a lot of brethren have used him. He's a guy named Barclay. I don't know if you've heard of Barclay, but, but he writes really cool stuff. And, but they're wrong. Almost everything he says is wrong, honestly. Uh, he makes a lot of great preaching things. And I used to do that. I used to take some of his stuff and it's like, whoa, that's cool! It is really cool, it makes great points, it's just not right. He's very, very loose with the facts. And, you know, what I've done is, much less than I ever would have in the past, I just don't make much reference to Greek or Hebrew or whatever. You know, I had two years of Greek, but that isn't, I don't know very much. You know, I, I, I can read it some and things like that, but, you know, what if I did? What if I was really right about something? I really knew that in Greek it means this. How would you know if I was right? You're going to just, I'm telling you, just trust me. You know, I'm telling you that's, I don't really want you to do that. How would you know? So that makes me a little hesitant too, even if I really thought I was right. You know, on something like this, I'm trying to refute something, giving you several things to look at. But you know my teaching. I just don't do that very often. I don't know enough to do it, and I wouldn't want you to just trust me on it. So I think that's a practical lesson. You know, you can read this fine in here. And uh, it's saying what it's saying. And for the third time, when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? It's like, Peter's like, I don't want to say. He really did love Jesus. But Peter's giving, but Jesus is giving Peter three times to say, I love you. He said, I don't know it three times. He says, I love you three times. And three times Jesus says, Peter, get busy and feed my sheep. I've got work for you again. Comments and questions? Sure. You know, I think uh, the point that made out of this is that uh, 
here's Peter, and he's made mistakes in the past, and the Lord has had to rebuke him on different occasions uh, in the gospel. But it is almost like this is the last straw. And this is Peter's greatest sin, but also this is what helped Peter become who he was. And I think there's a lesson learned in that. I'll tell you what, my sin is what made me who I am in a lot of ways. Because it makes me see how much I need the Lord. And I think finally Peter, finally, it finally hit him. that this wasn't about him. It was about the Lord. And it finally made him see, he was humble enough to know, I really need him. Uh, and this, I think, in some ways really made Peter the man he was. The seeing the fact that this is what he did and how much he owes the Lord. It is pretty amazing that the Lord who took Peter was able to make him a rock, isn't it? Because <laughs> he sure didn't start out much that way. But you look at the transformation of Peter, you really see the hand of God. Now, Jesus goes on to say here, um, in verse uh, 18, you know, used to be you did what you wanted to. But there's going to come a time when it's not going to work that way. <laughs> you know, when other people are going to control what happens to you, and really what he meant by that is he was going to die involuntarily. <laughs> you know, that he was going to be at the mercy of persecutors and be killed. Now remember the analogy Jesus is using when he tells Peter what to do. When he keeps telling Peter in verses 15 to 17 what to do, what role is he putting Peter in? The role of a what? Shepherd! And what does a good shepherd do? Takes care of his sheep, lays down his life. Yeah, takes care of his sheep, lays down his life for his sheep. So what Jesus is saying is, things aren't necessarily going to go for you, Peter, the way you think they will, the way you'd want them to, and ultimately, you're going to die in a way you didn't choose because of your service to me. He's going to have that honor when it's all said and done of giving his life for the sheep. So, Jesus really shows great tenderness and I think great understanding of Peter's situation and talking to him personally here and helping him to see what he needs to do. Aren't you glad John chose to include this chapter? You know, it seemed like everything was all finalized at the end of chapter 20, but I think after you see this chapter, you realize there were some things that needed to be said still, and John adds this chapter to really help us see those things. Other things you want to say through 19? Logan? I'm thinking some about how supposedly according to tradition that Peter was crucified upside down. Does that have any bearing on this about Peter dying involuntarily? Well, I don't know about the upside down part as far as that's concerned. Apparently, he asked for that because he didn't feel like he was worthy of dying the same way Jesus did. But definitely, the fact that he probably was crucified I think is what Jesus is referring to. We don't have a biblical statement to that effect, but the historical tradition is probably accurate about that. Other thoughts or questions? <clears throat> All right, would somebody read 20 to 25? Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had learned on his breast, leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? I'm in. I don't like 
Peter seeing him said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he, he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that his disciples would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Amen. Alright, in 20, Peter turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom of the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So the disciple Jesus loved is the guy who had asked Jesus who the betrayer was. And we think this is John. I think that's probably true. But Peter sees him following him. Jesus just told Peter, you're going to die how you don't want to. And Peter says, what about him? <laughs> Isn't that typical? Sometimes we want to know, well, what's going to happen to them? And are they going to get off easier than me or whatever? What's Jesus' answer to Peter's question, what about him? doesn't matter. You follow me, what happens to him between me and him. Yeah. What if I want him to stay alive till I come back? What is that to you? I mean, it doesn't matter if somebody else is receiving a different situation in their life than what you and I are, does it? You serve God where you are. We're always worried about what God's doing with somebody else. What's that to me? Well, why don't they have to suffer this? Not your problem. You serve God where you're at. Now, people misunderstood that, and people started saying about this disciple that Jesus loved, I think John, that he wouldn't die. No, that's not what Jesus said. He just said, well, if I do want him to stay, it doesn't really make any difference. Whatever I want to do with him, that's not your business. You follow me in the situation I put you in. Comments and thoughts? Probably got some good applications for us if you keep thinking about that. Um, this is the disciple who's testifying to these things. Now, perhaps verse 24 is kind of an authentication by whoever sent out this, this you know, uh, letter or this, this book. Uh, but, but the idea of this is the disciple Jesus loved is the one who's writing this book. And we know, whoever's sending this out, that his testimony's true. You know, he's telling you the truth. This is the guy who wrote the book. And verse 25. There are many other things. So many other things that the world couldn't contain all the books that'd be written. If everything Jesus did was recorded in detail. That is, I think, a helpful way to conclude this gospel. Does that show you something? There are strong limitations on how much we know. We are Many things are revealed to us, but so many more are not. We know what God's chosen to, to reveal to us. There's so many other things that could be known. We're limited. We, we, we have everything the Lord wants us to have, but we're very limited. Don't get the big head. We don't know it all. All right, comments and questions on John. Okay. Yes, Cameron. Do we have any knowledge of how John died? I don't. We, we generally think he was probably the last one 
to die. But, and maybe somebody knows. There probably is some kind of historical tradition about that. I don't know what it is. Uh, from what I understand, down on um, Patmos of natural causes, from what I've heard, I mean, that could be completely wrong. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent to study John together like this. You know, some, a few of you have been able to be in all these uh, various studies. Sorry to kind of piece this together like this, but uh, it's been really encouraging. Uh, we're a little bit early on the break. We'll probably be good. Just go ahead and take a break here, and then we'll go just a bit longer in the Zechariah section.